Good morning. It is a privilege for and an honor for me to share in God's Word with you this morning. I want to thank Pastor Mike for giving me, allowing me this opportunity to present God's Word as they are on holidays. And uh, what we want to do this morning is we want to kind of take a systematic approach to, as you've seen in your outlines, salvation's ultimate purpose. And what a fitting song to end our time of singing, All Glory Be to Christ. That is my prayer, my hope, that as we go through this, that our hearts will indeed bow before our Savior in worship and adoration, and that we will truly sing and say, All glory be to Christ. For that is what I hope to to be able to, to portray, that we'll be able to see as we look at the Scriptures this morning. We want to look at salvation's ultimate purpose. We want to begin in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 to kind of springboard from this morning. And hopefully you all didn't bring your new Bible to church this morning because we'll be flipping through it quite a bit. Hopefully you brought your well-worn Bible so that going through it is a little bit easier. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and verse 1 to 4, earlier Paul has already said, he said, he says, I determined to know nothing among you except Christ and Him crucified. And now in verse 1, chapter 15, 1 Corinthians, he says, now I would, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Paul's primary emphasis, his, his focus was the gospel. He says, I remind you, brothers, again of that, because not only is, is this the, the initiation of that salvation, but it is that which will continually save you, it will sanctify you, that full and complete salvation. That is the only thing in which you stand. The gospel is not only necessary for evangelism or, or to, for people to be saved, but it is essential for the saved. He goes on in verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. And Paul lays out what the gospel is, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures and in accordance with what the Scriptures say regarding our sin. That He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, and then to many more, over 500 witnesses, after that. But notice that he says that it is according to the Scriptures. And this gospel is of utmost importance. It is to Paul as well. And I want to propose to you that if, that if we do not understand or that if we lose sight of salvation's purpose, it is this gospel that then becomes maligned. And sometimes perhaps even intentionally or unintentionally, but it happens nonetheless. And I want to propose to you that also that it is moving away from this truth of salvation's ultimate purpose in the professing church today, moving away and in some cases probably even outright rejecting it, 
that has at least in part, and I, I would propose even played a key role in the emerging church, the seeker-friendly movement. Because when we lose sight of this, what we want to consider this morning, salvation's ultimate purpose, it is inevitable that it is only a matter of time before our message, our methods, and everything along with that become seeker-sensitive. The salvation, the, the ultimate purpose of salvation is according to God's ultimate purpose for all things. I want us to just read in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 16. We could spend a lot of time on, on basically each point that we're going to be making, but I want us to just see this. In Colossians chapter 1 verse 16, we probably have, have as clear a statement for the purpose as anywhere in scripture. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 16. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. There's nothing excluded from this. And he says, all things were created through him and for him. There we have the purpose statement for all things. All things that were created, all things, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authority, all things. There we have that purpose statement. All things are for him, for his glory. And salvation, this salvation that we have in Christ, this this deliverance from sin, it carries with that such huge blessings for us that mere mortal tongue cannot even adequately express and praise God for it. That, that God Almighty would be mindful of us as sinful man. Seeing our plight, seeing our condition, seeing that we were dead in our sins and trespasses, seeing that we were far off, transferring us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the Son of His love. In Him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. It is, it is marvelous, almost unspeakable, this glorious salvation that, that pertains to man even through Christ that God has given to His people. And sometimes because of these marvelous blessings and benefits that we have in this salvation, it becomes easy and, and, and almost inevitable, if you will, if we, if we don't stick to the Scriptures to see that as being God's primary purpose in all of what He does in this salvation. That that is His ultimate purpose, that man or man's salvation is His ultimate goal and purpose because of this glorious salvation that we have. But salvation, this glorious salvation that we have, all of it from start to finish, the 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 justification, the sanctification, the glorification, the election by the Father, the redemption accomplished by the Son, and the sealing of the Holy Spirit. All of that is not primarily focused on man. He is a recipient of that glorious grace, but it is God-centered, not man-centered. And that is what we want to see this morning, so that we will indeed be compelled 
to say all glory be to Christ. All throughout Scripture, we see God's primary, His ultimate, His His fundamental commitment to His own glory above all things. And as I've said, even when man is the recipient of this glorious salvation, these every blessing in the heavenly places. And so for us to see this, we want to kind of take a systematic overview, bird's eye approach to seeing this. And we want to begin by considering the Old Testament prototype of this, of this salvation. The prototype of God's salvation in the Old Testament is the nation of Israel. The prototype of of what God is doing in salvation is Israel and Egypt, delivering His people from bondage and slavery and bringing judgment upon the ungodly. Psalm 106 and verse 8, we see this. Speaking of this, if you turn there, Psalm 106 And we want to begin reading before verse 8. I think in verse 1. Let's begin in verse 1. Psalm 106. Praise the Lord. We'll give thanks to the Lord for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Who can utter the mighty deeds of the Lord or declare all His praise? No one. A rhetorical question that no one can declare all His praise. It is too marvelous. It is too great. Blessed are they who observe justice, who do righteousness at all times. Remember me, O Lord, when you show favor to your people. And there we see that. The Lord desires to and shows favor to his people. Help me, the psalmist says, when you save them, that I may look upon the prosperity of your chosen ones. Again, we see this prosperity, this, this marvelous blessing of Salvation, the prosperity of the chosen ones, that I may rejoice in the gladness of your nation, that my, that I may glory with your inheritance. But then in verse six, he says, both we and our fathers have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedness. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Yet he saved them, and notice what he says, his purpose, yet he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. There, in spite of who the nation of Israel was, in spite of how they rebelled, he saved them, not because they would eventually become a good people, but for his name's sake, to make known His mighty power. That is His purpose. That is His objective. Now, certainly we cannot deny, and we're going to see this, that God was moved by compassion for the plight of His people. God is a God who is moved by the plight of His people. He is a compassionate and loving God. His mercy endures forever. All those things are glorious truths that we can worship and praise Him for. The blessings and benefits that we have in this great salvation that is ours in Christ. And seeing the plight of His people, He was moved because of who He is. He was moved to deliver them, certainly. 
We see that, but yet even in his declarations of, of stating how moved he was, how, how his compassion was ignited by their plight, even in those declarations, he, he clearly indicates and he says again that yet that, even though all of that is true, that is not his ultimate and primary purpose. We see this in Exodus chapter 2. If you turn to Exodus chapter 2, Verse 23, during those days, during those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning. That God hearing their groaning, it is, it is more than just a, a verbal, audible hearing. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. What is that first thing? It is God, in verse 25, he says, God saw the people of Israel and God knew. But his first response is remembering his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and Jacob. Remembering his covenant, his word. That he is a covenant-keeping God. That he has made a covenant with these people. If we jump to chapter 3 and verse 7, this is in that burning bush passage where Moses sees this bush that is not burning up, where the Lord calls Moses to be the deliverer, to deliver his people. In verse 7, chapter 3 of Exodus Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. And I've also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. God is not naive or, or ignorant or, or not seeing or recognizing the plight of his people. And he is, he also recognizes when there are those who oppress his people. And because of what he saw, because of what Israel was enduring, Under the bondage, under the yoke of Egypt, God was moved with compassion and therefore delivered them. Verse 16, if we jump to verse 16, he goes on and he says, Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. Because he has seen what has been done to you in Egypt. Therefore, verse 17, he says, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of the, of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites and all the other ites. So God certainly is moved because he sees and recognizes the plight of his people. 
And also because of how he then acts and moves because of the plight that he sees his people in, he also clearly intends to bring judgment upon the oppressors, upon the ungodly, upon those who are persecuting and afflicting his people. Jump to Exodus chapter 6. We see this. God has seen their plight. He recognizes their plight. And He's moved to deliver them because of that. But not only is He going to deliver His people, but He's also going to declare and bring judgment on those who have oppressed His people. He is moved with compassion for His people, but His wrath and His anger is also roused unto judgment against those who hate Him. Exodus chapter 6 and verse 1, But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. Here is the Lord's declaration, what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of the land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. Notice again that the Lord makes himself the basis for what he is about to declare of what he is, what he will do. I am the Lord, therefore, I appear to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by, but, my, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groanings of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I remembered my covenant." Again, we see that what moved him was he is the Lord. He remembered his covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from slavery to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. So God not only was moved to deliver his people, but also to bring judgment upon the nation of Israel, which is a a, a prototype of of sin and, and the world. God is going to bring judgment upon sin. God is going to bring judgment upon the world. God is going to deliver His people. But He's also going to bring judgment upon the world. And so we see that He was moved by compassion. He saw the plight of His people. And yet, in spite of that, In recognizing that being a God of mercy and compassion, long-suffering and love, His overriding and primary concern, even in what we have seen already, in delivering Israel from the bondage that they were under, under in Egypt, and judging Egypt for their oppression of Israel, was to honor His name. Turn to Exodus chapter 9, just a few chapters over. I want to read and begin in verse 14. Let's begin in verse 13. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let the people go that they may serve me. 
Again, we do not see the Lord saying that let my people go so that they will no longer be in bondage to Egypt, though that is all part of it, but that they may serve me. Going on in verse 14, he says, For this time I will send all my plagues on you, yourself, and on your servants and your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. So that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. The Lord could have wiped out Egypt and have been perfectly justified in doing so. And though he brings judgment upon the nation, and though he delivers Israel from the bondage, But he says, why didn't he? He says, but for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow, I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as has never been in Egypt from that day, from the day it was founded until now. Because Pharaoh was still exalting himself against his people. And for this purpose, and Paul says this in Romans as well, but for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. God's purpose for all things that he has created, as we read already, is for himself. He is the creator. He gets to determine and to decide what he has created it for. And he makes it clear that it is for his glory, for his name to be proclaimed. That is his purpose. Chapter 14, still in Exodus. Chapter 14 and verse... Four, And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord and they did so. Pharaoh's purpose was fulfilled exactly according to what God had intended. God did get glory over Pharaoh. And he did it by bringing judgment upon him and the nation. He will pursue them and I will get glory over Pharaoh. Now verse 17 and 18. Still Exodus chapter 14. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. The Lord did get glory over Pharaoh. And so we see that from the very beginning, the the pronouncing of of deliverance and, and judgment that ultimately his ultimate purpose was his namesake, his own glory. For that reason, he raised Pharaoh up. 
Isaiah chapter 42. If you turn to Isaiah chapter 42, and in verse 1 to 7, we have the promise of God's chosen, chosen servant who will come in the power of the Spirit, who will, who will bring justice on the earth. He will open the eyes of the blind. He will, he will set the prisoners free. Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1 to 7, we see that. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one. And he goes on of how he is the chosen one who, who, as I said, who will free the prisoners, open the eyes of the blind, who will do all of that. But in doing all of that, notice verse 8. And notice this because we'll... Mention this again in closing. But in verse 8, after all of that promise of the Lord's chosen servant and the great deliverance that he will bring, verse 8, he says, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. In in, In doing all of this, he will not give his glory to another. In Isaiah chapter 48 and verse 9, we read that the Lord defers anger, His anger against Israel for His name's sake. He determines judgment and deliverance and all of that is for His name's sake. In Isaiah chapter 48 and verse 9, For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you that I may not cut you off. Verse 1 to 8, we have this this rebellion. There, In in verse 4, he says, You are obstinate and your neck is an iron sinew. It is not a pretty picture that is being being portrayed of, of the nation here. But yet, Israel is going to be refined for his glory. And he says, for my name's sake, I defer my anger. Not because you are deserving, not, not because you had it coming, but for his name's sake, because of what he had purposed to do in and with Israel. And so because the Lord defers his anger, because the Lord defers his wrath, they experience this marvelous mercy and grace. And yet even in that, Even in that, the Lord again makes it abundantly clear that His deferring of His anger is not because of them, but that is because of Him. If we keep reading in verse 10, He says, But I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction for my own sake. For my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Now, if the Lord was doing this for another, he would be sharing his glory with that other. And that is something that the Lord says he will not do. He will not share his glory with another. And because Israel profaned his holy name, 
They defiled the land that the Lord had given them, this, this land flowing with milk and honey, the land out of which God drove all their enemies out of, this land that God gave them as an inheritance, this land that, that God graciously allowed them to, to possess, the land that they, that they conquered against all odds from the very beginning in crossing the Jordan and, and conquering Jericho, But yet Israel profaned his holy name. They defiled the land. They worshipped pagan gods. And God, though he defers his anger, brings upon them the consequences for profaning his holy name. And they enter into the Babylonian exile. But even when they enter into the Babylonian exile, God already promises and and tells them that he will eventually rescue and restore them. That they will not be in exile forever. But even in that promise of deliverance once again from the Babylonian exile... He again, he, he makes it clear, lest there be any room for doubt, he says, it is not for you, but for myself that I do this. Turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 36, where we have the Babylonian exile and God promising to deliver them in spite of them having reached the point of no return and, and, and going into exile to the ba- uh, captive to the Babylonians. In Ezekiel chapter 36, I want to begin reading in verse 20. Many of you may even have this, this, this heading above verse 16, the Lord's concern for His holy name. But in verse 20, But when they came to the nations wherever they came, that is Israel, they profaned my holy name in that people said of them, these are the people of the Lord, and yet they had to go out of his land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came. Because of concern for his holy name, he promises that he will again rescue and deliver them. Therefore, verse 22, he says, Therefore, say to the house of Israel, because of his concern that he had for his holy name, therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. Now I will vindicate the holiness of my great name which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before your eyes. In all of that, in all of that deliverance, again, he makes it very clear, it is not for you, but because of my holy name. God has so committed himself. Notice that he said, I am the Lord. He, he begins by making himself the basis for what he is about to command and present. He has committed himself, who he is, his, his very character to what it all is for, to his people. And that if he does not deliver them, 
It will smear his reputation. And therefore, because he is not willing that his glory be given to another, he will deliver them. Now it stains his reputation that does not stain him. But because he refuses to share his glory with another, he will deliver them. Also, in Ezekiel chapter 32, or in Exodus chapter 32, rather, sorry. In Exodus chapter 32, you know how, how the children of Israel, they had only just, just been delivered from, from Pharaoh. Moses goes up on the mountain, and immediately the people say to Aaron, make for us a calf that we may worship. Let that be the God that brought us out of Egypt. They say to Aaron, and Aaron makes the golden calf, and the people immediately fall into idolatry. And God determines or, or says that he will wipe out the nation because of their idolatry. But then in Exodus chapter 32, Moses makes this beautiful intercessory prayer on their behalf. And he pleads for God's grace and he pleads for God's mercy that God would spare them. In Exodus chapter 32 and verse 7, and notice what the basis is for Moses' plea. Verse 7. I'm in the wrong chapter. Exodus chapter 32. Beginning in verse 7. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves, and they have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, that I may consume them in order that I make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent that he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them for the face, from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised. I will give to you to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Now Moses' intercession for his people is not, but God, if you just give them another chance, they will be different, they will be better next time. No, he, he makes the basis of his plea God himself, God's own faithfulness, that which God himself had already declared that because he would not give his glory to another, because he would not, he would vindicate his holy name, that if Israel was destroyed, that his holy name would be profaned. He, 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 he intercedes on the basis of what God himself has declared. 
that he will that he will vindicate his holy name god's own faithfulness his his covenant with abraham isaac and jacob his plea is not the people but god's glory and the scripture says if we ask anything according to his will we have it he is praying according to god's will that which god has declared and his basis is what God has declared, his plea is God's glory, which God has declared he will preserve at all cost. Daniel, in Daniel chapter 9, when he, when he prays for, for, the, for the people, he again, he makes God himself the basis and the confidence for his plea to deliver Israel. If you turn to Daniel chapter 9, Again, we see this, this same picture played out. Israel has rebelled. Verse 5, Daniel acknowledges we have sinned. Daniel chapter 9, verse 5, we have done wrong. We've acted wickedly, rebelled, turned aside from your commandments. We have not listened. And so we see the condition of the people. But then in verse 18, if we jump to verse 18, he makes his intercession. First, there's a lot of confession, but then he makes his intercession. Verse 18, he says, Oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. Remember your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not, delay not for your own sake. O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. Even in their intercessory prayers, Daniel and Moses, Pray according to what God has declared. They make God's commitment to His glory the basis for their intercession for their people. In Isaiah chapter 43 and verse 25, it says, He removes transgressions for His own sake. And so we have seen clearly from the Old Testament prototype that God has determined to save His people. He has determined to bring judgment upon the world, upon the ungodly. And all of that is for the ultimate purpose of His glory. We see this also in New Testament confirmations. And we want to just quickly look at some of those. He forgives sins for His own sake. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 12. First John chapter 2 and verse 12, he says, I am writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. And there is probably no greater emphasis, no, no clearer confirmation in the New Testament of God's ultimate purpose, his fundamental commitment in salvation that it is his glory than the apostle Paul and his exaltation of Jesus 
in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 1 to 14. And if you turn to Ephesians chapter 1, we just want to read those verses. We're not going to expound on them a whole lot, really not at all. We just want to let them speak for itself. We see a confirmation, a clear confirmation that God's ultimate purpose in salvation is His glory. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us. And here we have those unspeakable blessings that, that truly are ours in Christ because of this great salvation that God has given to His people in Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him also, in, in Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the Holy, with the Spirit, with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. All of salvation from beginning to end as Paul here declares, and thus God declares because it is the Word of God, that all aspects of this great salvation, this, 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 these all these blessings in the heavenly places that we have in Christ, and all of that, the election by the Father, the redemption that is accomplished by the Son, the sealing of and by the Holy Spirit, all to the praise of His glory. Verse 6, verse 12 Verse 14. And so we, what we see in the Old Testament prototype, we see confirmed in the New Testament. And it only makes sense that God's ultimate purpose for salvation would harmonize with His ultimate plan and purpose for all things. For He has one ultimate purpose, one ultimate plan, and that is Himself, His own glory. As we saw in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 16. In fact, we begin reading in the very beginning in Genesis 1, it begins with, in the beginning, God. God. It is all one plan and it is His plan. And every aspect of that plan, the salvation, the judgment, 
and of how he carries it out, it is determined by him and it will be accomplished just as he has determined all for and to his glory. And though we as man receive these as, as God's chosen people, we, we receive these every, he has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places so that our tongue cannot adequately praise and, and worship him. Though we receive his matchless love and his mercy, his grace, we, man, is not God's ultimate concern and purpose, even of his saving grace. It is, as MacArthur said, it is, it is the glory of his name that is uppermost in his affections. And so we want to just even illustrate this with marriage. When we try to use illustrations for God, we can very quickly uh, fall short and, and do injustice. So we want to use one that God himself uses in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 32. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 32, we have the instruction to wives and husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. But then in verse 32, he says, This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. This illustration of marriage being a picture of, of what God is doing, Christ in the church, this is one that God himself uses. And so we want to use that as an illustration of how, how God's ultimate purpose in salvation is himself, not us. If God's ultimate purpose in salvation was the salvation of mankind, his purpose, his ultimate purpose would have failed. Because the scripture is replete with, with passages that, that tell us that, that narrow, wide is the way that leads to destruction, narrow is the gate that leads to everlasting life, few there be that find it. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, have we not? And he will say, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, I never knew you. We, we see that the majority of people will not be saved. And if God's ultimate purpose was the salvation of mankind, we would have to acknowledge that God's ultimate purpose has failed. But those whom he has determined to deliver, he will. And those who he has determined to bring judgment upon, he will. And it will all be for his glory. Marriage as an illustration. The wife must be the uppermost in the husband's affections. The, the scriptures are clear, Psalm 127 verse 3, that the children are a heritage or a blessing or a reward from God. And that they are designed to be born only in the context of marriage. But yet children are not the ultimate purpose of marriage. If there are no children, the marriage has not failed. The purpose for marriage has not failed. The purpose of marriage can still be fulfilled just as well as if there are children. Children do not determine whether or not the purpose of marriage has been successful. The purpose of marriage is to, to be a reflection of, of, of Christ and, the, and His bride. We see this from the very beginning in Genesis. Man, for, he says, for this reason, man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. 
Not the family, not the children, but the two shall become one flesh. And so the wife must be uppermost in the husband's affection. And and if there are no children, the, the purpose of marriage has not failed. And so the Lord's ultimate purpose in salvation is His glory. And so if people are saved, whether people are saved or whether He brings judgment upon them does not determine whether or not He will be glorified in them, as we also saw from Pharaoh. Man is the crown of God's creation. Certainly, we see that. But any view, any view of salvation that puts forth God, or puts, sorry, any view of salvation that puts forth man as God's ultimate purpose for salvation, it necessarily brings down the glory of God. Whether we like it or not, because then man becomes the primary object. And any time we have something other than God as the primary object, the Bible actually defines that as idolatry. And so we see this clearly in the Old Testament prototype of Israel. And that brings us to our last point. We want to close with this. That this, God's ultimate purpose in salvation, this... is the only lasting motivation and safeguard for the gospel and for evangelism. Why do we say that? Much of professing Christianity today, much of what is being used to motivate, to prompt people, to, to guilt them perhaps, if you will, into sharing the gospel. Now we should all be sharing the gospel more than we do. I can, I can pretty much guarantee that. Every single one of us. But much of what is used to try and motivate people into to be, being more active and sharing the gospel is man. Man is often used as the primary motivator to get people to, to share the gospel. Man's plight. All these people who have not heard in, in, the, in the other countries. And we should be moved with compassion when we hear of all those people who are heading to a Christless eternity and have never even heard the name of Jesus. We should be, we must be moved by compassion. God himself, we saw he was moved with compassion and mercy for his people. But that is not to be our primary motivator, if that is our primary motivator, it can never be sustained. And perhaps that is why so much of missions is not sustained. We must have compassion for the lost, for one another. But until we see and embrace this ultimate purpose, we cannot maintain sustainable, constant gospel witness. It is inevitable that we are going to, to adapt the methods, we're going to adapt the message, because man is the ultimate purpose. And we're going to adapt the message to be more 
compatible with who man is. The gospel is not compatible with who man is. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. The gospel is what drastically changes who man is. And if man is the ultimate purpose, we're going to adapt methods. We're going to mess with methods. We're going to change the message, maybe just ever so slightly, because we have to make it more compatible with who man is. Not until the Lord becomes our purpose, our ultimate overriding purpose, can we maintain sustainable gospel witness. When it becomes because He commands us, yes, certainly we we must have compassion for the people who are lost and headed for a Christless eternity. But until that becomes our primary motivator, it cannot be sustained. Now, Say you go overseas and you go to this tribe to become a missionary, whatever it may be, because you were at a missions conference or some missionary just really laid on and you just really felt this, this compassion for the people. And I would say you need to have that in order to be a missionary, certainly. But now that's why you go. It's the people. It's just the compassion for the people. Now, these very same people, all of a sudden, they misuse and abuse your children. Now, your compassion for them will be zilch. It has to be God and the Lord Jesus Christ. His purpose, His ultimate purpose, because He commands it. And as first, as John says in 1 John 5 verse 2, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep His commandments. We do it because we love our Savior and He has commanded us. And because He loved, first loved, we love. As John says in John chapter 14 verse 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. It must be because He commands me to go. It must be because he commands me to share the good news of the gospel. If that is not what motivates us, we're inevitably going to fall to humanistic philosophies and approaches. We will be start being worried about, well, they will just be offended if I say that. And the fear of how man responds will begin to affect our message and our method. And we won't share because we don't care enough about man. And I want to propose to you, not a single one of us has enough love and compassion for man to to sustain a constant gospel witness. So this, that God's glory is the ultimate purpose, is absolutely vital to understand and embrace. I want to just point out one more thing, and then we want to close. In Luke chapter 2, And verse 14, I want us to turn there. The angel's declaration of this wonderful news that the Messiah has come. Luke chapter 2 and verse 14. The first declaration of, of the Messiah's arrival on earth. And the angel's proclamation in verse 14, the gospel of, or verse 14, the gospel of Luke chapter 2. 
Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Even in the arrival of the Messiah, the the ultimate objective and focus is still glory to God in the highest. And so it is my prayer that having seen that, that seeing that, seeing that, that that will become our ultimate focus, that we will bow before him in worship, recognizing that he, not we, is the ultimate purpose, that he, that he, he will, who alone is worthy may receive all the honor and the praise and the glory that is due him. Let us bow in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we, we come to you this morning and we do give you praise. We do give you praise that, Lord, that you who alone are worthy have made yourself the chief objective of all that you do. For anything else would be unthinkable. Father, we thank you that you have not made it about us for how messed up would that not become. Father, we thank you that it is about you who, who is constant, with whom there is no shifting shadow. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And Father, we thank you even for, in this great purpose that you have, that you have determined to bring glory to yourself as you also will, when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father that your purposes will be accomplished, that they will not be thwarted, as Job says, he has, I have come to see that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And we thank you for that, and we thank you that in this, your great purpose, you have chosen to save us, that you have recognized the plight of your people, and that because you are compassionate and merciful, you have delivered us, that you have given us the Lord Jesus Christ, that you laid on him the iniquity of us all, that he became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Oh, Father, how rich are these blessings, these heavenly blessings that we have in him, and we do praise you for that. But, Father, help us to always recognize that, that you are the ultimate cause, the ultimate purpose, and so that we might give our ultimate cause, our, our ultimate purpose, our worship to you and to you alone. And may it be for your glory. We do pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.